I use a little bit of, I guess what it would be is, I think shame is a very useful tool. And so is a little self-hatred. Oh and my I hate God, to say that. you're so dark. All right. I know I'm the worst. And that's why I was like, why am I on the show? Performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that we're getting pretty close to brain zapping implants that could help you fight depression. Scientists at University of California, San Francisco implanted hundreds of tiny electrodes about the size of a sesame seed in the outer layer of a 44-year-old woman's brain. Then they kicked off a tiny electrical, they call it an earthquake at different spots in her brain. And the woman didn't notice most of the electrical pulses, but when they targeted the brain area just behind her eyes, she said she felt calmer in her nerves. And with stimulation to that one part of the brain, other study participants sat up a little straighter and seemed a little bit more alert. And those positive mood changes that were in response to very light neural jolts brought those researchers closer to a really big goal we've had for a long time, which is a device that you could put into the brain of severely depressed people to detect a big crisis coming on and zap the brain out of it, almost like stopping a seizure. And to other scientists who have studied depression for decades, it's a big deal in neuroscience. Of the about 16.2 million U.S. adults with severe depression, about a third of them don't respond to conventional treatments. If you've checked out my YouTube channel or the podcast I did about transcranial magnetic stuff, you'll see a picture of me. I look like a Smurf. My, my face is all wrapped up in this blue uh, neoprene thing with a $250,000 giant magnet zapping my head. That also seems to work. And I, In that same podcast, we talked about ketamine, which is another thing. But what would happen if you actually could use technology so you didn't need drugs and you didn't have to have a you know, 10-ton, $250,000 magnet strapped to your head because it's hard to walk. Actually, you can't you move when you're doing that. So what scientists have figured out is using tech, not drugs, that there are some key features of depressed brains. There's certain types of brain waves in specific locations like that one behind and slightly above your eyes. And... Other researchers are looking at how do you correct that faulty brain activity. Certainly neurofeedback is part of it. You've heard of my 40 years of Zen program, which is doing really well. We don't, we don't treat depression there, but we look at a depressed brain. You can see what it looks like. And the idea of implanting something is interesting. The idea of sticking something to your head is also interesting. But what I want you to know, even if you don't have depression, you probably know someone who does have depression. It's a big deal. And sometimes medications can absolutely save people's lives. Uh, and other times, there's lots of other things to do with it, but it's something that affects the fabric of society. It, it's a big deal, and the idea that we can hack that makes me pretty happy. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. 
You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health Dave for an exclusive 10% off. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code Dave. You might have been wondering, gee, I wonder if Dave's going to talk about depression. And that's because I have now actually earned a PhD in the art of foreshadowing. If, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you definitely know about that. And uh, well, we are going to talk about depression, but we're also going to talk about humor and how the two come together. Because today's guest is a really interesting woman. It, she's hard to pin down. It's like, well, what do you actually do? And the answer is lots of cool stuff. Uh, she's a, a comedian, a writer, a podcaster, does stand-up comedy at live shows on TV. And she's written for Comedy Central and the Adam Carolla Show. She co-hosted Loveline with Dr. Drew and Mike, as well as co-hosted the Adam Carolla Show. And she co-hosts the Ask Women podcast, where she's willing to talk about pretty much anything you can think about uh, bedroom or not. So uh, we will talk about things that are funny and probably sexy. And we're also going to talk about living with clinical depression because you probably didn't know that Kristen Carney has clinical depression as well as doing all that other fun stuff. Kristen, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I really feel just so alive by that by that intro. I actually don't realize that I do all those things because my brain is always weighed down by depression. So that actually was flattering to hear that I do all those things. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. Do you have imposter syndrome? I definitely do. So even though you're doing, I mean, those are some serious credentials I just read out. I mean, those are, I'm going to dare I call them game changer level things, but okay. Adam Kroll is kind of a badass. Dr. Drew is kind of a badass. I've been on both of their shows and good human beings, but also hundreds of millions of eyeballs causing positive change in the world, you know, creating joy and things like that. And you're like, yeah, I'm, I kind of write for those guys, whatever. Yeah. What does the voice in your head tell you, the, the depressed voice in your head tell you? Well, ever since I was a kid, everything has been not just glass half empty, it's glass totally empty. I don't know why my brain's been like that. I don't know if it was learned or if uh, I just came out of the womb feeling like, well, that womb was half empty. I have looked at everything always with a negative 
light and it's made my life incredibly difficult. Um, and so I feel like I have a little part masochist in me because no matter what I do, it's not good enough and it's not interesting enough because I let reality in my current moment weigh me down. So like, for example, right now, you listed all of those credentials, but what you can't see is I have a frame from a child's bed covered in an egg crate that's ripped and has like stains on it to try to reduce the echo in my room. And so in my mind, a real professional wouldn't have that. A person who's achieved things wouldn't have that. So have you seen, okay, I'm just going <laughs> to turn my camera for a minute. Okay. Do you see all the chaos around, around here? <laughs> Yeah, but it's like beautiful chaos. And I think because I can get shallow enough, I can say, well, it's beautiful chaos because it costs money. You know, and I'm like, well, my thing didn't cost money, so it's not beautiful chaos. I'm 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 broke, so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. So the voice in your head saying, like, I don't have enough money, I I'm I'm not doing it as good as you know, some other person and, and it's pretty much constantly there or does it come and go? It's constant. It's constant, but it's weird because I have flashes. It's almost like little um jolts of lightning that don't hit often because, you know, I'm not lucky enough to get hit by lightning. But every once in a while they come in and I see things clearly. And that's it's that's something I hang on to to be able to move forward to the next day or the next week because I had this little flash of, oh, things are great. I have a wonderful life and I'm doing great. But then it goes away. But I remember it. It's like I hold on to it like a little, you know, I tuck it away in a special box that I'd put under my bed wow. and pull out when I'm lonely or something. <laughs> So, so what does it do to you if someone just looks at you and just like pets your hair and says, I think you're so amazing and just like stares at you? Does the voice in your head just be like, screw you, buddy? Or, or do you just melt? Well, part of me is like a raging narcissist because I'll be like, oh, my God, I know. Thank you. <laughs> that's your <laughs> comedian then, side. <laughs> that's, but that's also the non-comedian side because the, the like I feel like part of me is like a Woody Allen type where it's just constant talking to myself. No, 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 this was wrong. I didn't, I shouldn't have done this. Uh, uh, and I, I, I don't, I don't know what that voice is. It's, I'm kind of losing track right now, trying to even figure out what that voice is or what your question was actually just now. I was just wondering like what your, what your voice does if someone really comes in and just validates it. It says all the things that a depressed voice doesn't do. I wonder how it affects you versus how it affects someone who doesn't have clinical depression. Okay. Right. So yeah. So I'll take it in and I'll agree and that will last. That's that little flash of lightning. And then the other side comes in and shows me the evidence of all the things that I'm not. And so then I'll be like, yeah, okay, buddy. Like, I don't know if you're you know, just trying to get somewhere with me or if you're, you know, what your ulterior motive is. Uh, I don't trust it. I, I assume that there's something else going on uh, for someone to say something so lovely and nice to me for no reason. So you have sort of an inner skeptic that's maybe a little bit more buff than the average person. Yeah. I mean, he's like Schwarzenegger. <laughs> so my inner skeptic is Schwarzenegger and my inner narcissist is like tiny little bite-sized, I don't want to say something politically incorrect, uh, someone from little people, big world. <laughs> Just leave it at that. <laughs> you know, it's a small, it's a smaller physical structure. Okay. I just make sure that wasn't a comment about hands, was it? No, no. You have lovely hands, by the <laughs> no, way. No, I don't mean my hands. I, I was just thinking of, of some other person who shall remain nameless. Um, you know what I'm talking about? 
No. That's oh, 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 yes. The fr- yes. Someone who's in politics. I, and by yes. the way, I have never expressed an opinion about politics on this show at all, because That's frankly, right. I follow politics about as well as I follow professional sports, uh, which is to same. say not that well. Yeah, same. Uh, um, now, getting back to the clinical depression side, you said something interesting. You said, maybe I was, maybe, you said, maybe it's how I came out of the womb. So do you have this background of like dark trauma? I mean, did you come out of the womb, you know, with birth trauma and forceps and have a rough childhood on the streets of New York or something? Honestly, I think it's just traumatizing that I had to be in my mom's vagina at all. So I think we all start out in a dark place. We're like, I was in there. Oh, my God, I've touched my mom's vagina. That's a weird concept (laughs) to know that we've all had contact. It'd be, you know, it's like we've never had contact with our dad's, you know, junk hopefully. But it's just a, you know, a thing that we all have touched our mom's vagina and we don't, we don't talk about it. Like it's a strange thing. So I think that's where the damage began. It's just knowing I was in my mom's uh, (laughs) badge, (laughs) but no, I didn't really, I didn't have um, a dark childhood in the sense of having a bad family or abuse, but I, at the age of three developed, I don't know if that's not the right word because you know, you don't develop a lazy eye, but you do, I guess, develop just sounds positive. You know, like your grow growth is, is development. Um, but with uh, me, I, at the age of three started to, um, show signs of a crossed eye, which turned out to be something called accommodative esotropia, which essentially is, I guess, um, your muscle trying to see clearly and in, and it's, in its attempt to see clearly, your eye crosses. It's almost like it can't pat its, you know, head and rub its belly at the same time. It's like you can't do two things at once. So your eye is essentially giving up the 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 straightness in order to see twenty twenty. Wow. So so at that young age, all I knew was those are my first memories are of having a crossed eye, and I think that affected me so deeply. But you don't still how I identify. At least I don't see it. Do you? Actually, well, I have this special thing on the camera here that makes my eye look straight. Okay, I totally... No, 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 no. I know I do not have a cross Okay, I'm thinking, man, I'm crazy here because you you don't... Okay, so it went away. Well, so it didn't necessarily just go away. I had surgery and it was a pretty traumatic surgery where the doctor came in and cut um, my muscle essentially to shorten it and tighten it. So it became stronger or something like that. I never really have understood the surgery. Um, but then I had, um, to wear a patch over my eye and I have really thick glasses that you can't see because I'm masking them with contact lenses at the moment. (laughs) Um, but when I do take my contacts out, my eye does cross again. So kidding. Yep. So I have a very, um, like dark secret that I feel like I keep and I've kept my whole life, which I think has affected me. So you know what's weird? Uh, I uh, it, it's actually making me laugh because one of the things that that helped me figure out the the psychology side of you know why I did all sorts of stupid stuff when I was younger uh, is that I met this lady when I was thirty and she looked at me she goes tell me about your birth and, and I'm like uh, hospitals vaginas I don't really know that's kind of a weird question. Uh, it was at a personal development thing, and she was running it. Her name was Barbara Findeisen. 
and and it turns out I'd been born with the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck, which oh. didn't cut off oxygen, but it, there's birth trauma and you come into the world like thinking like, you know, everyone's out to get me and like, you know, the world's a bad place and there's something trying to kill you. And well, they're right. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so uh, anyway, she, she helped me do a bunch of work on that stuff, which is why I asked the first question. Uh, but then the other thing, I don't know if I've ever talked about on the show. For probably till I was about 35, my brain would turn off my left eye. I didn't know it, but I was not seeing with both eyes because it was so much work for my brain to make my eyes work together that it would just go away. And so I would just look through my right eye. And wow. I used to have like a droopy left eye too that I was super conscious about. And I went through a, about three months of really intense training, like visual training that just made me exhausted when I do it. And now, this is more than what, almost 15 years later, how old am I? 11 years later. I can, uh, I'm 2015 in both eyes and I don't have that problem anymore, but it was like a couple of years of cognitive or not cognitively, just changing my brain neurologically. Wow. Uh, so see that takes that takes work and you're the does. type who who works and you work hard to figure out, you know, hacking how to make yourself stronger, how to make life stronger. That takes work and energy and I hate work and I have no energy. So if someone said, <laughs> "Here's a way to keep your eyes straight." You know, it would just take immense amount of uh work. I would say, "No, nah, I think I'm good with the crossed eye." I'm it very lazy. <laughs> okay, so there's strategic laziness here, Kristen. And the question is, if you're truly lazy, avoiding the annoyance and pain of having something can be as big of a motivator. I, I think I'm the laziest person on the planet, right? I just don't like to do stuff. So if I can automate it or I can spend less time or energy doing it, I'll I'll take that path because I'm super lazy. And that, that does free up time to do something that I wanted to do. Uh, the yeah, problem is that. Yeah. Yeah, you're a motivated, lazy person, and that makes total sense. I'm yeah. like a lazy, lazy person. Yeah. I'm the real deal. Now, you wouldn't have street cred amongst my types. <laughs> All right. Well, so are you? Is that what you're calling laziness? Uh, although I'm kind of looking back to what we talked about here. I'm like, let's see. You have all these professional gigs. Like, oh yeah, Love Line. You know, I'm a stand-up comedian. You know, total loser me. I'm like, this does not match, right? So your self-professed laziness that is not borne out in your career, uh, is that because of your clinical depression or is it from something else? I've always struggled with that. And that was one of the first things when I finally talked to a psychiatrist because I was ironically too lazy to find one. Once I did find one, I said, I don't know if I'm lazy or if I'm depressed. And he said, you're depressed. And that was a huge, huge burden lifted off of my shoulders because then I didn't have to, which I loved, not take responsibility for my lack of work ethic or my lack of drive or my lack of whatever it is because he said it's your depression. So in a way, I got to take blame away from myself. And even though he's told me it's your depression, I still have a hard time buying it. It's the same like if someone complimented me, I'd be like, eh, I don't know. Uh, um, but I, I, you know, I think it's a combination of both. I look at like my family and what I'm from. We're not the hard, we're not the hardest working group of, of folks out there. Our last name's Carney. What do you expect? And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so I think I come by it naturally. Um, but I have uh, this tick in me that needs to achieve. So it's it's a difficult combination to be incredibly lazy, but also to want to amount to something. 
So it's a constant thunderstorm, you know, trying to fight those two things at the same time or together they're fighting each other. Well, it seems to be working on on some levels for you, at least professionally. Okay, that side of that side of things has been has been dominant. Uh, I'm still interested, though. Uh, you, you said something fascinating. You said when I was diagnosed with depression, it was a weight off your shoulders. Um, and I, I also I thought there was something just wrong with me. I'm like, I don't know. I'm about to fail out of uh, Wharton, uh, and you know, I'm, I, I feel like I'm kind of stupid some of the time. Uh, and it turns out I, I was because I went in and I got a brain scan with Dr. Amen, who's been on the show now and has become a friend. Uh, and they're like, uh, you have a hardware problem in your brain, Dave. Like it's, it's actually not getting blood flow and see these big holes right here. That's where you have mm. chemical damage to your brain. I'm like, oh my God, it's not a moral failing. It's not that I'm just like weak. Uh, it's that there's something that is wrong, and I'm pretty sure we can fix a hardware problem. So I, I went in and you know did a bunch of stuff, and I was like, wow, I don't even know how you know like, I don't know the upper levels of what my brain's capable of. I'm still plumbing that. Um, have you gone in and like had said, all right, like what's what's up with my brain, doc? You know, give me some antidepressants, give me some whatevers. You know, what, have you gone down and, and sort of looked at that? Well, again, I hate to keep saying this, but. I think I'm too lazy because I don't know where to start. It's like if I don't have, and I think a lot of depressed people struggle with this and people in general, um, but if you don't have a starting point, you just don't start at all. And so for me, if I don't have a starting point, like I don't know where to look necessarily to um, get a brain scan. I don't know how much that would cost. I don't know, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so when you're depressed, you're so weighed down by the smallest little tasks like, uh, you know, getting up to take a shower or, you know, paying your car bill, your, those things feel so heavy that the last thing on your list is figuring out how to get a brain scan. Like, right. No, no, no. Right. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to get out of bed. So I don't get to that point because I don't really ever feel like emotionally, uh, strong enough to, but I would love to, like you saying that I want, if I got a brain scan and he showed me the holes, I would like, please print this out, hang this on my wall, frame it so that I can one, feel like great about myself for actually going out and, and doing that and figuring mm -hmm. that out, but also to have proof that it's not my fault. Again, you know, I can blame it on something else. I would love to show that it'd be like a trophy. <laughs> a trophy. <laughs> Um, well, it sounds like you've, you though, you've talked about this on your show. Uh, you've talked about the different things that you do find when you have just a, this is a sucky day kind of thing. What do you do when you wake up? You're like, I feel more depressed than normal. Like what, what do you change in your life? Cause I'm hoping people listening will be like, Oh, maybe I could try that even if I'm not depressed or maybe <laughs> I am depressed. Like, so give, give me your, like, uh, like wake myself up, kick myself in the, in, in the ass, even though, uh, even though I don't want to kind of moves. Okay. What, what works? Well, because I mentioned that I am a slight masochist, the first thing I do do if I'm feeling really depressed, which I should not, I am not advocating this, but it is part of the process. I will look at someone's Instagram page who has the best life, who is perfect, everything is going for them, and I'll look at it and I'll soak it in in a way to where I'm like, oh, I hate this person. I hate them <laughs> and I feel even worse. Oh my God, why am I doing this to myself? But then what I do is I take that and I use it to kick my own butt. And I know that a lot of that is fake. People only put out their highlight reel. You sure. know, it's not all necessarily as uh, appears to be. And so I do take 
motivation and things that make me feel bad about myself to pull me out of bed. So I'll look at someone's Instagram. I could say her name. It's like my go-to uh, like cutting. It's almost looking at her Instagram page is my version of cutting. <laughs> it's so, so painful. She is so perfect and everything is going like she's hilarious. She's beautiful. She's she's just she's perfect in every way and so hateable. So I'll look at her Instagram page and it will kick my butt and I'll get out of bed and I'll start my day because I don't want to be the person looking at her Instagram page and not that I want to be her. But I'll use her, not achievements, but I'll use someone like her where she is to see what's possible. That life can be great. Look at all the things you can achieve. And that is what I need in the morning to remind myself of what I'm doing and where I'm trying to go. And so it's not the most positive thing to do. It's very harmful, but it's part of my process. And not every single time I'll look at her page necessarily I'm not like obsessed with her or stalking her you know every you know, I'll, I'll think okay it's been about two weeks I should check in and see how great Kelly's doing uh, but okay so you basically go to like the you know I have a beautiful life kind of person but so you're sort of using envy as a way to get yourself out of out of bed yeah but not like I don't want to make it sound necessarily like envy like one of the seven deadly sins it's not that it's not that I'm desiring someone else's life it's that I I use a little bit of, I guess what it would be is, I think shame is a very useful tool, and so is a little self-hatred. Oh and my I hate God, to say that. you're so dark, all right? I know I'm the worst, and that's why I was like, why am I on the show? But I think those things are necessary things to propel you forward. And so if I have a little shame... It propels me to get better and to move forward. So I, you know, I'll feel shame of looking at her page, but then it propels me to not be that person in bed looking at at her page. And I'm making it sound like I look at it way more often than I do. That's really such a small. <laughs> you said part once of every puzzle, two I weeks. Okay, that, that's not yeah, too bad. <laughs> like, right. So it's like I. It's almost like a little, um, a little check in with with what you could be doing, kind of thing, to just remind yourself because. Um, I tend to like to gravitate toward people who are really easygoing, not super driven, kind of lackadaisical, funny. But, you know, I, I gravitate toward those people because I feel comfortable with them. I think they're easiest to be around. So okay. that check in with her or someone like her is just to kind of throw me back into the world of, OK, this is what is possible. Even though it can make you feel worse, I do use it in a positive way. And then what I talked to um, one of your um, uh, producers about is headstands. I yeah. do a crazy amount of headstands, which is um, incredibly therapeutic. And when I talked to your producer, I actually didn't really understand the biology of why it was yeah. so therapeutic. I could guess. But then once we got off the phone, I ended up looking it up and, and reading more about it and understanding a little bit more about what goes on in the brain. So my morning routine usually begins with a headstand. And that is only because I can't begin it with coffee because I have a sensitivity to coffee. Otherwise, I would be addicted to Bulletproof and just drink it nonstop. And I would be like, screw headstands. I can Hold get this a second. in a yummy cup. You're telling me that you're a writer for Comedy Central and you don't drink coffee? Well, not all, That sounds like BS. Um, I mean, come on. Well... <laughs> 
Well, I don't currently write for them, so. Oh, okay, got it. So that, yeah, that's why you quit yeah. the coffee. When you quit the coffee, you. you yeah, and like they'll throw you out of the writer's room. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, they throw you out of the writer's room if you start doing headstands. It's like, all right, weirdo, get out of here. Well, the headstands, uh, I think, are a fantastic idea. And uh, assuming that you don't have an aneurysm or something like that, uh, probably anyone with depression uh, could benefit from just being upside down, even if it's on a tilt table, because, hey, what would happen if you had more blood in your head? Uh, your brain might work better. It, it can right. make a big difference. Right. Um, well, someone pointed that out to me about the aneurysm thing. I had posted online. I started doing headstands and was really excited about it, very proud of myself. I could never do one before. I never knew I could do a headstand. And so, of course, someone wrote to me and said, you know, you could get an aneurysm or you could um, – There, there's a story of someone having, I don't know if it was a stroke or something because they did too many headstands. And then, of course, I was – torn between should I take the risk or, you know, is this so silly? It's one in a billion people will have that happen to them. So I ignored the danger, not that there's danger because I'm not a very um, brave person. I would never skydive or anything like that. So <laughs> for me, this is my version of skydiving every morning. Well, I, I think given the number of people who do headstands and go upside down and the number of deaths, it's one of the things like sharks. <laughs> You know, sharks kill seven people a year, and mosquitoes kill seven hundred fifty thousand people a year. But how many? No, of us are, do yeah, they really? Totally. Oh my god! Well, <laughs> so I mean, if you want something, I know scared where of, to those, send my enemies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just go to a tropical region without malaria medication. But it, it's like it's one of those things where we have uh, these cognitive biases. So I I truly believe that for people who who do not know that they have a high risk of aneurysm, as in it's in your family or you've had an MRI, doing headstands is probably pretty darn safe. You know, in the overall scheme of things that you could do, it's probably as safe as driving. Yeah, and so, I'm like, if I go that way, at least I went out doing something I love. I don't know. Okay. I never thought I'd say I love headstands, okay. but yeah. And, and you say you're sensitive to coffee. Now, you've tried actual Bulletproof coffee. Like You, you can... Because I, I gave up all coffee for five years because I was sensitive to it until I hacked the bean production process. And I'm like, okay, I can do it. So you've done my beans? I have not done your beans. Oh, my God. I'm sending, and that's you, not I'm sending you some of my beans. They're tested for these mold toxins that make me tweak. And they make a lot of people tweak. So we stopped fermentation in the creation of the coffee ah, beans. Interesting. So well, right, my sensitivity, yeah. my sensitivity developed before before I heard of Bulletproof. But once I saw Bulletproof, I was like, oh man, I would have okay. loved that. But it was like, I was, you know, it was back in the day when I realized I had the sensitivity. I'm going to send you some cold brew. It's already made. You don't have to have a coffee maker because you probably don't have one so you don't drink coffee. I'll just send that to you. And if you drink it and you're like, I feel like a great golden goddess uh, and I didn't get coffee sensitivity, I'm going to tell you, it wasn't caffeine, it wasn't coffee, it was the other crap that grows on coffee. Oh, I'm Interesting. excited. Right, I'm going I'm to like double your writing performance. Cool, yeah, this will okay. be... Um, a really good experiment. However, if I get a horrific migraine mm -hmm. and end up vomiting, I'm sending you video of that and making you <laughs> suffer. Nice. I'll be like, yeah, me. bring it on. <laughs> Your fault. Uh, but see, now you sound sadistic, not masochistic. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all confused. I don't know. Here. I don't know. Uh, I you're don't know. you're a switch. I, I see how it is. Yeah. Um, all right, so you, you've actually hosted the Playboy podcast um, and you offer dating help and you have your Ask Women podcast and all that stuff. So like three or four times now, you've said you're a masochist. Now, is this just like you <laughs> joking around or is this like your dating life that you're talking about? No, well, I mean, emotionally, I'm a masochist in my dating life. Physically, I'm not. I'm very boring and men, you know, they don't get what they're expecting um, with me. But it's interesting that I 
have even gone toward the dating relationship space because my whole life I was never interested in dating. I could have cared less about making out with boys when I was younger. I didn't ever imagine my wedding. I wasn't sexual. How I ended up getting into this was um, I was working, doing some videos for the website called Mm askmen.com. And through Ask Men, we um, did a women call or a video called Ask Women, where it was asking women questions. And through that, I met my co-host of my podcast, Marnie Kinris, who is a relationship expert. And her and I began doing this podcast on dating and it was a yin and yang thing. So she was the relationship sex expert and I was the uh, asexual nerd who (laughs) had no advice, no experience and no interest in it just to add comedy to make it an entertaining podcast. And so we've been doing that for six years. So now I've ventured over into this dating world and I guess have, you know, developed some sort of sex drive that they talk about. I uh, know it's a new thing for me. Um, And so now I'm a lot more experienced in it. And uh, I actually work with guys in the online dating space to help their profiles um, be more engaging, witty, interesting. And I actually teach guys how to banter with women. And I wrote a banter guide um, on how to actually step by step um, become witty and uh, and more engaging in conversation. So I don't really focus on the like, you know, the sexual side side so much as I do the more communication style side. Like, so I'm really not do, like, what do you have to do to leading up to the sexual side is, is your area of expertise? Um, like, you know, talking, forming relationships, that kind of stuff. Oh, I was going to say like, get drunk at bars and hook up with dudes. Uh, I began dating. So when, when we started the podcast, I actually did have a boyfriend and we were together for eight years. So it was a very comfortable situation. I never dated before that. So I had no experience. So once he and I broke up, that's when this whole world kind of opened up to me because I got online and I got involved in the, you know, online dating and I was opened up to the horrors, the horrors that is dating. It's awful. It's so bad. And so because I do comedy and consider myself somewhat witty, I like to be able to engage in a guy online in a witty, fun, back and forth ping pong match kind of way. And I was blown away at how bad guys were. And I know girls are too. I just, I'm not hooking up with them. So I'm not having these convos, but they were so, these men were so bad at having fun back and forth flirtatious banter when you first matched on the app that I, I thought there's gotta be a way to, to show guys there's a formula. You can be interesting. You can be funny. Stop being so boring. And so it was just basically out of so many bad, uh, exchanges online that I started to, uh, figure all of this, this out in this little, um, a formula I came up with um, to help guys because it's like that's such an important part of the dating process is just the first few interactions because most people do meet online. So I'm glad that I don't have to do online dating. It sounds like an enormous amount of work with a lot less feedback than this old fashioned thing where you yeah, know, just walk you, in like, hey, you want to go out to dinner? Like, whoa, in person. But I guess right. I'm showing my, I'm in my 40s. Oh my God. Well, everyone who got into a relationship before online dating basically dodged a train. They had no idea that this oncoming train was coming and they stepped out of the way right in time because it's a pretty, it's, you know, it can be, it can be fun. It can be fun, 
but after a while it becomes a very daunting, heavy, um, uh, ominous situation because people don't get the results they want. They keep trying the same thing over and over. They get frustrated at the opposite sex. So yeah, it's a whole spiral. So what, what is it like dating when you have clinical depression? Uh, dating with depression is not easy and has proven much more difficult than I thought. And uh, I figured I'm charming enough. I can make the depression look like a, you know, lesser evil than it is. Um, but it's um, it's a scary thing for a lot of people because it's like it's basically learning someone as an STD. You're like, eh, I don't really know if I want someone with emotional herpes. <laughs> okay, so do you <laughs> like people with herpes? Do you like go to a dating website? for other people with herpes, like, no problem. <laughs> We're not Which actually, each other. I think but that exists, by the way. For, it does, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. But is there one for, like, you know, meet a clinically depressed single uh, sort of a website? Do you well, seek there, out people with depression? Because, like, oh, they'll get me. Well, no, I think you seek out people... Well, yes, yes and no. So I seek out people I can relate with, which would mean maybe they have depression, but I also seek out people who can maybe enhance my my quality of life and not that that's their burden or that's their job, but I do look for people who are, um, now, now I do, you know, I, this is a learning process. I at first looked for people who could be just as down in the dumps as I could. Um, but now I've learned, you know, the yin and yang, I think balance is so important in everything. And to speak on the apps of, um, finding someone with depression, I don't know if there's an app for that specifically, but there is an app. I don't know if it still exists, um, we spoke to him through our podcast, uh, an interview never happened, but he, he advertised on my other podcast called mentally or called Kristen and chill, which is a comedy podcast. But anyway, he, um, had an app called lemonade, which was an app for people with disabilities in every sense of the word. So if it, whether it was a physical disability or a mental disability, that's, that was supposed to be a meeting place for people with you know, similar problems to find each other, but I don't know if it ever took off. I don't know if it still exists. I never looked on it because, you know, I think, and I think maybe it didn't work because people would think, well, I don't, you know, want to wallow in my problem. I want to, you know, be with everybody else or whatever. Um, right. So it could exist. It may not. I have no idea. Okay. But it, it was sort of an idea, but your, your thing is, is that you don't target other people with depression who might understand it because you're sort of saying, I'd, just want you know someone who has lots of energy and you know we'll, we work it out. Okay, at what date do you tell someone? Oh yeah, by the way, I have depression. Like, is that like a date number two? Is that the after you know you've you know sealed the deal? <laughs> when, well, for me, when, when is the right time? <laughs> for me, it's a little different because I have a podcast uh, on depression kind of specifically. Yeah. yeah, so I can't really uh, give them like a hey, by the way. <laughs> so they pretty much already know. So I'm lucky in that sense. Uh, I just sometimes say, maybe you don't want to listen to the podcast first. Like, you know, it exists, but maybe just avoid it. Get to know me two, three months, then you can delve into the podcast. Um, but, uh, I think for people who are dating, um, and don't have a podcast to be able to advertise that they're depressed, I think the best time is probably two or three dates in when you're enjoying someone's company and you don't ever position it in a negative light, even though obviously you hear depression, you're immediately going to think, this is a negative scenario, but you phrase it in a way that's positive. So you say, uh, I've struggled with depression for a long time, but I 
I've been working my butt off to get it to a better place. And I'm feeling really hopeful because I've, you know, found this and this that works and I'm in a great routine. And so I'm always getting better with it or something. And even though, I mean, if that's not the case and you're struggling deeply, deeply with depression and you're not getting, getting um, better with it, I think still phrasing it in a way of there's hope for me though, is, is what you want to do. You never want to, you know, it's almost like if you go into a date um, and you have kids and they didn't know that, I mean, I don't know why they wouldn't know that. Maybe if they dated me, I would hide my, I would definitely hide my kids. They'd not be on my social media. I'd be get out of here. Um, but if they were to go on a date with someone and they didn't tell them they had kids yet, you would never phrase it in a way of, oh, you know, I've got three kids. I'm exhausted. They're exhausting. I'm exhausted. You would phrase it as I've got these three amazing spawns of myself that, you know, are even better than I am and they're hilarious. And, you know, you, you always want to put it in a positive light, even if you think it might be a negative thing okay got it so you would you dress it up a little bit okay yeah dress it up put some lipstick on you know but and and i hate to be um advocating for being disingenuous i'm not trying to say be disingenuous because it's you know putting makeup on a woman it's what we do we a lot of women like to wear makeup when we take the makeup off makeup off it's a little like oh whoa so i'm not trying to you know spin it positive when it's not but to actually find the positive in it. Uh, Look, dating genuine. is disingenuous. Like, like there are guys, okay, I, I better do a few push-ups for this date so I look good and I'm going to wear the right shirt or whatever else. And hey, I'm going to shower. <laughs> like, no, no one shows up for their date in their worst possible self. So there's always packaging and marketing involved with dating. And I, I don't my think theory, anyone would argue. <laughs> my theory, though, is that if we did show up in our worst possible we would find someone so much quicker and it would be yeah. so much easier because if you, it's like the, you know, Marilyn Monroe thing. Like if you don't love me at my worst, you can't love me at my best, but, or something, whatever that is. But if someone met me without, like if I was not dressed up, I had no makeup on and we met at the grocery store, I looked like shit. I hadn't showered and he was into me. It would, it would be so amazing once I actually did get ready and look good. He'd be like, whoa, my God, I found like this rare diamond. You know, his expectations would go. Wouldn't, <laughs> Set wouldn't. expectations low at first. All right. <laughs> yes. Basically put the bar low. Okay. And then you can go high. All right. So you're having a bad day. You're depressed. Now, does getting some fix that? No. So orgasms don't, don't do anything for depression. Or can you well, just I'm not sure have they, them? Um, you can't really have them if it's your medication. So okay, I don't have many because of my medication. Um, but the orgasm, the, like quote unquote orgasm would be, uh, you know, someone I'm dating validating me in a way or making me really? feel lovely. Yeah, that would be like my little orgasm of, of um, I'm talking of about like mind. an actual orgasm, you know, the kind you measure with EEGs on your head. Right. And, they have like a little thing that they can put in that measures pressure sensations and like you can quantify an orgasm to be like, did it happen or was it just like something you were thinking about? I'm so yeah. I'm, oh, like a, does I'm, a real one with oxytocin and all that. Does that raise you up or no? I think for the moment, but okay. I don't know how long that oxytocin lasts. You know, it's, I think that burst, Oh my God, that was good. That's the little lightning bolt I was talking about. That like is you get a little, your tone. okay, mm -hmm, cool. you get a little something, something and then it goes away. And so, how do you recreate that and and let those chemicals maybe linger longer? I don't know. And that's what I'm always trying to figure out. So, you know, I'm always working on 
um, different combinations of things to make the lightning bolt stay longer. Okay, you have to listen to the interview with Dr. Paul Zak, also known as Dr. Love, but not Love Line. Um, he's the guy who sort of popularized oxytocin. He spoke at one of the Bulletproof conferences. Yeah. And I first met him and he just hugged me. And I was at this weird dinner thing with John Levy where you're not allowed to say who you are or what you do until after dinner. So you're all making dinner together with all these people who do stuff, but- Oh, wait, uh, let, can I interrupt you? Yeah. The fall in that is- no one who's not doing well will go to that. So oh, you course. know everyone's going to be doing well. Yeah, yeah. And they wouldn't so like surprise, like, oh, I'm a garbage man. Right, it's like invitation like, only, but you just have no idea. Apparently there were some famous people there. I didn't really recognize very many famous people. Uh, but uh, I did call that one of them was an actress. I'm like, because you're really short, therefore you must be an actress because all the actresses <laughs> are really short because they look bigger on film. Other than that, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but Paul Zach was there. And he has a video that I ended up playing at the conference. 90% of people who watch this one minute video have a huge rise in oxytocin. Just from this, mm. it's like a video of a, a kid with disabilities um, who's you know getting attention and love and things like that. And like, whoa. So you play wow. it and you can see the whole audience of thousands of people are just sort of sitting there like, my heart is open. I feel so good. But you would love that because he talks about like what a hug will do for oxytocin. So if you're trying to, if it's oxytocin that's making you not depressed, hey, that's kind of interesting. Uh, but I'm I'm sort of looking for your hacks. And right now we know you don't do coffee, but I'm about to fix that. We know mm -hmm. that you do headstands. Do you like avoid French fries or eat extra cheesecake or do you have any sort of nutritional things that help with your depression? Well, I seem to lose my appetite when I'm depressed, which is good okay. and bad. Good because I'm ridiculously thin and women are so jealous of me. Um, bad because I don't get all the nutrients and all the good things that my brain needs. Um, but I tend to crave things very high in fat because I don't eat often. Mm -hmm. So I don't really watch what I eat because of not eating often. So when I do eat, I'll eat whatever it is that I want. So I, I do bad things like I eat lots and lots of McDonald's. But I do it because it's almost like a taking a Xanax for, for me. <laughs> it calms me. I think it's the nostalgia, the taste of familiarity. If I'm having anxiety and I go, and I don't do it every time, but occasionally I'll be having such bad anxiety and I'll think a cheeseburger with extra pickles, a medium fry, and an orange soda will, will cure this. And it does. I'll go. I'll get wow. satisfied. It makes me feel cozy and, and warm and then I feel a lot better. So I know it's not good for me, but I could be doing a lot worse at the same time. But it's also, you know, like it's not good when the next level of worse would be drugs, you know, like McDonald's, it's like McDonald's drugs, you know, so it's not great, but it's not the worst. Well, a lot of clinically depressed people end up with addiction, you know, uh, at a minimum you know, nicotine, uh, and certainly alcohol, and then there's all sorts of other drugs. You know, a, a lot of times it tends to be uh, crystal meth, right? Because you know it's it's an upper. Like I'm feeling depressed, and so give me some coke and and things like that. Has that ever been something that was, was a part of your life? Something you struggled with, or you're like, no, I, I dodged that bullet. No, I dodged that bullet, and thankfully because of shame. And that's oh, why I that's why I promote shame. <laughs> I think shame is so healthy. So I had never really gravitated toward drugs. It's never been my thing. They've always felt very dirty and shameful and scary to me. And I think the shame has kept me away. And uh, 
And I know that, you know, depression does take you to dark, dark places. So I'm not saying that that's not a possibility. But what I've tended to do, and I don't do it often, I do not have a drinking problem at all. Um, but for um, when I'm having severe anxiety, I have noticed I do tend to want to get a drink. Um, but I never let that go out of control. And again, it's because of the shame thing. I never want to be um, hiding something that I do. I never want to be embarrassed of something that I do. I always want to be proud of myself. So I try to keep those as uh, constants in my life, the the level of, you know, um, of integrity and things like that so that I don't go to those darker places. And it's really hard not to. But shame that keeps shame keeps me healthy. It really does. <laughs> wow, that is uh, that. I'm trying to think of the right word for that. I I think that's pretty fucked up. That that <laughs> that's probably the right word. This I whole interview is, and I apologize. <laughs> no, I, I'm just like wow. I I used to do, I used to have a lot of shame, and I I don't anymore. I just I look back on it, and uh, yeah, it it certainly can be a motivating thing when when you you think about it. It just comes at a at a at a cost, right? Yeah. And too much of it is bad. And then again, balance, I think is so important. If you are completely shameless, I don't think that's healthy. And if you're completely full of shame, I don't think that's healthy. My mom is someone who has way too much shame. And so she can't really live her and she shouldn't have any shame. She's a perfect little church mouse and does everything right. Um, but shame keeps her in a box. And if she didn't have the shame, it would also maybe make her, uh, you know, a wild child living an unhealthy life. So it's a balance. And I think I have a really, really good ratio of shame versus not shame. Um, but it's, it's necessary for sure for me anyway. How did that shame and depression, all this stuff, how did that uh, affect you? Because you recently, I basically lost a co-host in your your podcast like through what was was probably a suicide uh that could be destabilizing for someone who's not depressed and you seem like you're handling it okay what what happened to you when that happened so i lost my co-host to um my not the ask women podcast the dating one not not that podcast um i had another podcast called mentally chill and the ill was in parentheses and so it was about depression and um her name was stevie ryan she was such an amazing beautiful hilarious charismatic woman and um and it was really really difficult uh to go through obviously um but i think it's been two years so i think it's the time does help. Obviously, the wounds will always still be there. But it made me look at myself um, in a mirror. And it was I was seeing good things and I was seeing bad things. Because I do think Stevie and I were very, very similar. And she did take her own life. Um, and because of the similarities, I realized a few things. One, when she looked at herself and saw depression and someone else looked at her and saw depression, they could not grasp how could this person with all of this go all the things she has going for her and all the things that she's achieved, how could she possibly dep be depressed? And so I use that as a motivation within myself to say from the outside, if I took my own life, people would say the same thing about me. And so it made me come to terms with uh, being proud of myself and 
and being okay with or, or believing in my achievements and not downplaying them. Um, but then also was a mirror reflection for me in a bad way where it was, uh, I do the same things that she does and she just committed suicide. So I need to alter my behavior clearly. Um, so I was supported a lot through people. I, you know, went to therapy a lot. Um, I did actually have to increase my antidepressant dosage. Um, I did a lot of different things to cope, but now I do believe because it's been two years, I think time has made it, um, easier to not forget about, but to remove yourself from. So I almost, I think I've put it in a little compartment in my brain and moved on from it, even though I know that compartment's still there. So you, you basically upped your meds and, and did some work on you know, processing it and, and moved on and, and then eventually you lowered your medication. I actually, yes, I did. I went off of it, which was a really bad idea. Um, and I did go off of it because I lost my insurance and I couldn't afford it. Um, and so my heart goes out to anyone who's in that scenario. Um, but that was a bad, that was a bad, bad idea. Bad, bad, bad idea. I'd go into the credit card debt versus the depression. So I did go back on my medication and I'm actually back at the same dose that I was at the time when I increased it. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, it's sad how the U.S. has changed the way we uh, we support people with mental illness. <laughs> Whether getting all the way into the homeless thing, it's one of those things where it shouldn't be an economic burden because it's in all of our interests to have people, our depressed people, functioning well in society versus struggling. It just it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it makes but, even the grocery store more pleasant. Yeah, exactly. You know, we uh, one of my goals with with Bulletproof is, you know, I, I want a world full of people with more kindness. And it turns out being well fed is one of the easiest things that'll make that happen. But uh, not being depressed when we know what's going on, and we know what'll make you better. Uh, I'm, I, I think we should help people with that. Now, being a being a comedian, I, I've had JP Sears uh, and Kyle Cease are a couple of comedians who've been on the show who are friends. And they both have evolved sort of a, a personal development angle. And uh, Jim Carrey is another example of someone like that who's you know gone from sort of a little bit silly to a little bit more, you know, he's still silly, but he, you know, he, he's got a kind of a spiritual side to, to what, uh, what he's doing now. Do you feel like you're on that sort of a path? Like as you, you dig deeper in the roots of your depression and in your comedy and all that stuff that you're sort of evolving as a human being and someday you're going to have, you know, white robes and, uh, you know, candles and stuff, or are you just like not going in that direction? Well, I think I am going in the development self-help, uh, direction, kicking and screaming. I am digging my nails in so deep and trying so hard not to go down this path because I've never been a self-help type of person. I've always kind of said fooey to that and been cynical, but after doing this Ask Women podcast for so many years. It is part self-help podcast. I've realized that self-help actually does work. And so I am I am begrudgingly becoming a more developed person. But because, it, and I'll never, ever, ever feel like, you know, uh, I'll never, it's the shame. I will feel shame going this direction because as a comedian, no, you're supposed to be cynical. You're not supposed to be positive and you're not supposed to, be uh, learning and growing, you're supposed to stay where you are. And that's where the funny comes from. So there's the battle inside of me, which sees the proof of, oh, wow, self-help things do actually really work. And they make your life 
a lot better. Um, you don't have to stay this super cynical comedian. And and I've I was actually listening to the episode with Kyle that you had on oh, cool. uh, Kyle Kyle Cease, and um, he said that uh, you know he's started meditating for like two hours a day. I could I could never ever ever do that. If did, I did, I wouldn't admit it. Did that make you want to punch him when he said that? Yeah, two hours. <laughs> I mean, come on, two minutes is an achievement for me with meditating. <laughs> But um, I remember hearing Jerry Seinfeld does meditation and that cracked me. That kind of uh, loosened my loosened my uh, strings a little bit and opened my willingness to think, okay, well, if Jerry, who is the most observational Mm -hmm. human on the planet, can find sense in meditating and doesn't think it's silly, then I won't think it's silly because Jerry's my hero. So. I have not yet begun to meditate, but because he said he did it, I thought, okay, if Jerry can do it, I won't make fun of it, and maybe I could do it. So my headstands is my version of meditating. Okay, so that's a start. Um, I, I I get that. Now, you talked about Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, he meditates, but there's also Larry David, and I, I don't know him super well. I got to play poker with him once at a celebrity tournament thing that I had no business being at, uh, and I and I did take his his celebrity fake poker money, but he didn't seem like a meditator at the time. Nah, no, nah. no. Like, err. So, so yeah. you do have, and he's also a brilliant man, right? So, so you, you do have like that side of, of comedians where there's that dry wit. Um, there's a book called The Artist's Way. Have you ever heard of it? Yes. Have I read it? No. Okay. That's that's where my laziness comes in. Got it. Because I I used to believe before I read that book, this is a while back, um, that okay, the the roots of an artist are always like in pain and dissatisfaction and uh, things like that, especially comedy. And that book convinced me that actually there's a, another type of artist who doesn't use those things to create their art and that you can make it either way. I was like, oh, that's super interesting. And not being a particular artist or maybe my type of art is more of like a computer hacker thinks of art, but whatever the heck you want to call it. Um, I was intrigued by that idea because um, it was something that was echoed by both JP and Kyle sort of saying like, I'm on this personal development side. I still have my funny side, but the idea that you can, you know, be funny uh, without, uh, you know, putting someone down, or if you do put them down, it's not in the same way you would have done. And you can contrast that with like the sort of, you know, Joe Rogan style, you know, dick jokes all the time, sort of more of like the, I don't know, the angry side of things. Um, so there's all these different flavors of comedy and all. And I'm, well, I love, yeah, I love that. You, I love that you bring that up because I've struggled with the idea of if I become happy, then I'll lose my funny. And so in a way I've thought, well, I have to stay cynical and and depressed because that's where the art comes from. That's right. how I am me. So if I get rid of that, then who am I? And I would have to strip myself down and become someone else. But I'm learning that it can still be you just with positivity at the same time. It doesn't mean you're going to lose your perspective on things or your past or what's defined you you'll add to it, if anything. But that's been very, very, very difficult for me to accept um, because I want to believe that, no, you need to be suffering in order to produce the best of what you have to offer. Got it. So it's like, can you be funny without suffering? And I meet people who are comedians. I meet comedians that aren't depressed and haven't suffered. 
And I doubt, and I, I, you know, I really kind of look at them like very suspicious, like almost like Larry David would have a stare off with someone when they tell me they're not depressed, but they're a comedian. I really do like a, Hmm, I don't know if I buy you, but I've learned that some people can just be funny. They don't have to be tortured souls. And it's like, wow, that's awesome. I'm very jealous. Is that your and maybe goal? I'll be there someday. Are you working on getting there? I am working on getting there. And okay. I think I'm, I think I'm doing pretty good as much as I like to talk about the, you know, shame and masochism and all that kind of stuff that is a, to fuel my, my comedy. I, I'm trying to figure out how much of that is shtick versus there. I, I know. I, I think Me there's too. some real, there's some realness there though. You've, you've, you've still got some trauma back, back there behind that. Comedy. Oh yeah. You never get over the trauma of a crossed eye. You really don't. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah. When you're the kid in, in school with an eye, with a lazy eye, and that's the thing too, is I always wondered, I wonder if I became lazy because of the association with the word lazy, because I was the kid with the lazy oh, eye. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, there could be a really big stigma about that. It yeah, I'm thinking about the. There's two other women uh, in my life who had you know, real serious eye issues, and it's it's a it's a major trauma thing. I never thought of it like that, but yeah, both of them have had to do like serious, um, like deep level therapy kind of stuff around like the early stuff with their eye. I never thought of that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So well, the thing the is one. too, <laughs> I don't, it's like you, I'm not saying you want street cred of an amputee, however, and it's not as traumatic as being an amputee, but God, you're so dark. All right. I know. <laughs> but if you think about it, someone who, you know, is missing their arm or loses their arm in a car accident, there's the, there's the um, recognition of that, which I wouldn't want in a million years. I'm not asking to lose an arm. I would give an arm to not lose an arm, ironically. But there's there's that awareness of, oh, this person has suffered with this, and maybe we should treat them in a way that is kind or more gentle. But with the crossed eye, because it's straight by held straight by contacts, I'm not getting any of the the uh, you know. Uh, attention I might want for like, oh, the poor thing had a crossed eye. Let's, you know, make things nice and great for her because she said to yeah. worry about this crossed eye roll. So obviously they're two completely different things. But, you know, uh, people see me and they don't see a crossed eye and they don't know why I am the way I am. And if I was missing a limb, let's say, it would be more yeah. obvious. You know, it's not obvious. People always go, you look like you would have been the mean girl in high school. You know, you look like you... You wouldn't have been bullied. I was bullied. I wasn't, you know, I had all that stuff happening, but there's no physical um, proof of that right now in this current, you know, yeah. phase of my life. It, so it's the same when people have you know, toxic mold exposure, chronic fatigue, or Lyme disease. And I, I did a documentary on toxic mold. I, I had all of those things diagnosed one time or another, but you look normal. So people just like, why can't you do normal right. things? Like, because right. putting one foot in front of the other right now is all I've got. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, but it's invisible. And so you don't get treated that way. And I guess earlier, 16.2 million people with clinical depression, but you don't know which ones they are unless they tell right. you. Exactly. Uh, so, okay. Or they might be a little smelly, but <laughs> nice. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> now, it is hard to shower when you're depressed. I've been it, there. It's a lot of work to shower. I, I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the good news is that if you eat the right stuff, you don't need to shower that often anyway. And, uh, Got my friends yeah. at AO Biome. They have this like little spray you spray on your skin, and then it's bacteria that eats all the stuff that smells bad. So apparently, oh, wow. some people just stop showering. Yeah. Send me that with the coffee, please. Uh, there you go. Well, they're they're just <laughs> friends, but I'm sure after if they hear that, they'll probably send you some. Uh, okay, they're good. just in the New York Times, uh, I think today. Um, awesome. Now, 
I've got one more question for you, and I have no idea what you're going to do with this. My new book is called Superhuman, and it comes out in October, and it's the things I'm doing to live to at least 180. It's like, where's our science? What do we know? What do we not know? What are the things that are going to take you out if you don't manage them? What are the things that are going to make you old if you don't manage them, and how do you fix it? Uh, and I've gotten some flack for saying, well, yeah, I'm going to make it to at least 180, right? And I, there's, there's science behind that, right? And I'm totally willing to die trying. Uh, but I want to know. And you probably will. Uh, it might happen, <laughs> right? And if so, I'll be like, ha ha, I'm not here, guys. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I think, it's, I think it's a reasonable goal. I'll put it that way. But okay. what I want to know, as someone who is actually successful, <laughs> even though you don't necessarily tell yourself that, by most people's measures of success, uh, you're successful. Uh, and, and you're continuing to work on what you've got. So how long do you want to live? Given all the things you have like that, you know, if, if you get to pick or how long do you think you're going to live? Either one. Two, three, four, maybe five years, I would say, is, is, is max. Really? No, no, no. no I was like, good no. God. <laughs> no. Okay. I would never want to live to 180. I have no idea what's going on in your mind. I think we need to delve deeper into that as to why you would even want to be around for 180 years. But Look, I would Looking say, like this. Okay. Not, not yeah. look, I, I, don't, I don't mean tubes and monitors and wheelchairs. Like, who wants that? Right. Well, I mean, if I could look like this for 180 years, I definitely okay. want to stay around. No, I would I would probably want to live until about 80. Um, I I uh, I'm scared to die. I'm death scares me for sure. I'm a coward in the true sense of the word. Um, but I also, you know, eh, I, I got it. I got the idea of life like I, I get it like, OK. I did it. Now let's let's see what's next, and see what else uh, there is to offer in this uh, weird existence. All right. So you want to see what else is out there? All right. I'm I'm curious about that myself, <laughs> but I figure I can. I'll practice patience while I hang around and do fun stuff yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, if you, if you you know, I mean, if you do put in perspective, though, eighty years versus the billions and billions that you know the the galaxies and plans planets have existed, it's nothing. So. That's how I've justified not uh, committing suicide. And that sounds really dark, but I would never, ever commit suicide ever. And that's my justification. It's like, well, I mean, even if I make it to 90, 95, it's so short in in the span of what could be. So it'll go like, you know, in a just, blink, it'll be life, over. Life is precious and rare. I, I yeah, it's so short. So whatever, stick it out and see what happens. I like it. Stick it out and see what happens. <laughs> That's probably a good name for a podcast sometime. Yeah. All right. Uh, your website is Kristen and Chill, and you have more podcasts than Good Sense, I would say. Uh, but Kristen and Chill is, is your, your kind of new big one, and you've got several other ones like that. And Kristen, I just want to thank you for coming on the show and just being super real about, hey, here's what's going on inside the head of someone with clinical depression, because it's out there. And if you're listening to this going, well, I'm not depressed. If you were depressed, you might not even know it unless you've been diagnosed. And if you aren't depressed, I guarantee you that if you go to work and you look around, someone there is, and it's affecting the dynamics of the org, you look in your extended family, probably someone is, you just can't spot them. So knowing a little about what it's like can be kind of useful for you, uh, whether or not you're one of the people with it. I agree. And I think people do enjoy listening to my podcast on depression, which is now called Kristen and Chill, which was once mentally chill. But after losing my co-host to, to, um, to suicide, I eventually changed it over to just Kristen and Chill. But, but what people really grasp 
or hold on to in my podcast is how real it is. There's no sugar coating. There's no political correctness. It's as real as you can get. And people find a lot of comfort in that. So if they're feeling depressed and you don't want to, and you don't know, know who to um, connect with over it, you can definitely connect with me over the podcast, Kristen and Jill. All right, there you go. So there's a resource for you. If uh, if you think this is going on or you think there's something around there, check out Kristen Chill. It's actually interesting. I've listened to it. And uh, yeah, if you're looking for a new podcast, give it a shot. And if you have not subscribed to the podcast you like, you should do it because then they automatically download. That includes Bulletproof. And if you like Kristen and Chill, subscribe. New ones just magically show up in your app and then you'll listen to them. Um, that's what I do. <laughs> Have a wonderful day, and thanks for listening to Bulletproof Radio. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.